What a summer it's been. And it's not even summer. If, depending on where you're listening from tonight, if you're in the West, I mean, you've witnessed the forest fires that have ravaged the prairies for weeks now. More recently, we've seen the images from Nova Scotia, devastating fires that have not only taken out great swaths of forest, but have wiped out homes, have wiped out businesses. We're going to talk to someone actually coming up in our second hour who lost a home and a business. Tragic story, but I think you'll be inspired by her resilience and her attitude on moving forward after this tragedy. And we don't have to be climate scientists to know that if it's hotter and it's drier, we could see more forest fires. Whether there's a direct correlation between climate change and this fire in this location, I certainly don't know the answer to that. But we thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, climate change and maybe more specifically El Nino, because we've been hearing about El Nino for a few years now. And it seems like it's not an every year thing, but when it comes up, and I know when I hear the word El Nino, I just think, okay, it's going to be probably hotter and drier. But that's very surface level, and I'm not even sure how correct that is on a case-by-case basis. Luckily, we do have a climate scientist that can help us with all of these issues. Simon Donner is a climate Scientologist and professor at the uh, University of British Columbia. Simon, thanks for coming on the program with us tonight. Happy to be with you today. I wanted to talk about El Nino, and I, I don't know, and maybe we can get into sort of cause and effect when it comes to climate, something like El Nino, and some of the uh, some of the weather experiences that we've been having over the last several weeks and months for that matter in this country. Are we in an El Nino right now? So we're not right now. The reason it keeps popping up in the news and people are, you know, hearing about it on social media is because all the the, the seasonal and like kind of long-term forecasts say that uh, we're likely moving into El Nino conditions. And so, well, when El Ninos happen, the, the, the effect is mostly in the winter and the spring here and so it would actually be this coming winter and then sort of the spring afterwards and el nino means what yeah so i'm really glad you asked uh so el nino is is um a phenomenon that actually happens in the pacific ocean off the coast of south america and so the first thing you could say is why does that matter for us Well, what happens is every few years, the water warms up at the surface in the eastern part of the Pacific, and you get this kind of whole overturning of how uh, the weather works across the equatorial Pacific. Winds shift, uh, current shift, water's warmer in places where it's normally colder. And the reason it matters to, to places like British Columbia is that there's so much energy in the ocean, in the atmosphere, across the Pacific, you know, big, huge, wide stretch of ocean, that moving where the warm water is and moving where the currents are basically influences the atmosphere overall. And and you can kind of think of it like uh, if uh, moving moving some pebbles in a stream, if you move them, the water is going to change how it flows. And so it's kind of what happens by moving uh, the circulation of air and water in the equatorial Pacific it causes the airflow over the rest of the planet to change. And so we tend, and so one of the effects is that during big El Nino events, Western and central Canada tend to have really dry, warm winters and springs. And so the, basically all the, the forecasters are saying that might, we might be looking at that, uh, you know, coming, you know, starting this fall. And so 
what springs to mind to me then is we, I guess it depends again where people are listening to us tonight from, from all across the country. But if, 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 if someone's in an area that has exper- just gone through a winter with less than normal snowpack and very little moisture or precipitation through March and April and, and into May, uh, are, are we saying then that that could be even worse next year? Yeah, I mean, it could be. You know, El Nino is just one of the many, the, the sort of the El Nino um, variability, I guess you could say, from year to year. Mm. It's just one of the many things that affects, affects the sort of seasonal climate in Canada. There's, there's lots of other, other things that, that affect the climate here. So you can have a, a dry and warm winter without an El Nino event, but they're more likely to happen if you have an El Nino event. You know, and of course, El Ninos are happening on top of the human effect on the climate. Right, so El Nino events are getting warmer, just like the alternate, the the inverse events of those La Nina events are getting warmer. It's all getting warmer because of how we've been putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, right? And so, so that, the same, yeah, the same El Nino event a uh, hundred years ago would not have been as warm. And so, is that why we've only really, and and again, I know this isn't the first time that people are hearing about El Nino, but it, they may have only started hearing about it. I'm not even sure, late 80s, 90s, somewhere in there where it sort of became a thing? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. Actually, the very first thing I ever wrote about, you know, in my field about climate science was about the 97, 98 El Nino event. And that was the first time that it was really predicted long in advance. And it really is just advances in science. Some of it is just simply the computers have gotten faster so we can do better long-range predictions. And so I think we hear about El Nino now partly because people are increasingly interested and concerned about just the impacts of weather and climate on our lives and on forests and everything. Uh, but some of it is that the ability of scientists to do the forecasting and say, hey, we think an El Nino event's coming in six months did not exist in the 1980s. That we just, the, the scientific uh, like, and technical ability here has advanced incredibly over the past few decades. We're speaking with Simon Donner, a climate scientist and professor at the University of British Columbia, talking about El Nino and uh, the potential effects on, I guess, Simon, you're saying maybe from the West Coast through to Central Canada, are we talking Ontario? That's generally, if we're going to experience uh, some effects of El Nino coming in the, in the coming months, that's the region it would affect mostly? Yeah, it, you know, it's, fun, it's funny that you point out uh, whether it stretches all the way to Ontario. Uh, if you look on, if, you know, people search online for, you know, patterns of like weather changes during El Nino events. The maps you'll see will show that it's Western Canada from like BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan into Manitoba and into a bit of Ontario, uh, but not very, not, not, you know, not covering the whole province. Uh, but most, it's very funny, most of the maps you'll find online are actually quite old, based on older data. In the mo- more recent El Nino events, we do tend to find that almost the entire country is, is affected and is, has a warm and dry winter, with the very exception of the sort of like parts of Quebec, the Maritimes, and the, like the very east coast of the country. Um, but it does depend on exactly how the El Nino event develops. Uh, not El Nino events are created equal. And uh, some of them uh, basically have greater effects on the global climate. Some of them have smaller effects on the global climate. 
And so you had mentioned before the break also talking about, again, not how not all El Ninos may be created equally and the effect that climate change has on El Nino. And are we to assume then that uh, the effects are heightened because of the, uh, the climate change that we're, that we're experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the last big El Nino event we had is, was in 2015-2016 set, uh, you know, we, we set global temperature records around the world in 2016 as a result of the combination of the El Nino event and, and global warming. Uh, but what's, what's incredible is, you know, if we went back 100 years ago, you would need an El Nino event for the year to be for, for to have an unusually warm year on the planet. But now we don't anymore. Right. We, we're we, you know, we can even break temperature records outside of El Nino events sometimes because of the effect of, you know, burning fossil fuels and everything on the climate. I'm curious, uh, this is your life's work. Does it have a personal effect on you when you see these events happening, knowing the underlying uh, data and science behind it when you keep seeing records set year after year after year, you keep seeing these events that, uh, although they may have happened throughout history, are heightened and exacerbated by, by the climate change that's going on right now? I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, everything that's happening out in the world and all the climate events we've had over the past uh, few years and all the record temperatures we've had both, you know, here in BC, but also averaged across the planet. All of that just sort of has been adding to the data, you know, adding to the evidence that, um, that, that humans are affecting the climate. Right. And when I, you know, as a student studying this stuff 25 years ago, when I first sort of started, uh, the, the kind of idea back then was that if you kind of wanted to see or experience climate change, you had to go somewhere else because here in North America, we're pretty insulated, uh, wealthier, um, you know, wealthier countries. We have uh, a lot of homes have air conditioning, although not necessarily here in the lower mainland um, of, of Vancouver, of BC. They had to go somewhere else to see climate change. And that's the biggest change uh, in my personal experience, um, you know, over the past 25 years is that you don't need to go anywhere. I mean, climate change is right outside everybody's doors now, right? I mean, everybody in BC, Alberta um, knows this and what we've experienced over the past few years. And do we know, uh, so, and you can tell me if, if, if this uh, adds up to, to your research and to what you know about this, but, you know, we're told that not only, are we experiencing this in Canada, but in fact that uh, it may be heightened in Canada, that we may be seeing uh, more effects of climate change in Canada than other countries are or other regions of the world are. Is, is, is that a thing? It, it is a thing um, in that Canada has warmed at twice the rate as the rest of the rest of the world. Um, and the, as a scientist, I mean, that actually is confirming that we kind of understand the physics of how all the warming is happening. Because the reason Canada's warming faster than the rest of the world is because we're a big northern and cold country. Uh, and so there's some feedback effects that come into play that would only come into play in a place that has a lot of snow and ice and that has land at high latitudes. Uh, and so basically, even like going back into the late 60s, when the first climate models were created, the predictions were if you added a lot of extra carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and the planet warmed, it would warm faster at high latitudes in the northern hemisphere. And now, you know, 50 years later, we're seeing that happen. 
And it's happening at a, it seems like a, a fairly rapid pace as well. Um, Simon, thank you very much for coming on with us tonight. Uh, uh, and so for people listening now and wondering about El Nino and we hear about it in the news and sometimes we think, okay, it must be happening right now. And maybe that's why uh, we're experiencing if, if it's dry where you are, if it's hotter than normal where you are. But in fact, uh, we may not start experiencing, if we're going to, the effects of El Nino for a few months yet. Simon, thanks very much for your time. We do appreciate it tonight. Absolutely. Thanks so much. We want to talk about social media influencers. We want to talk about celebrity endorsements, but more specifically, the social media influencers. What is it? Uh, and if so many young people want to be influencers, is there a future in it? How do you get into it? How do you make money at it? How do you sustain it? Uh, well, we think we have the perfect guest for this, Casey Stewart is an award-winning Canadian lifestyle blogger, content creator, digital media expert. Casey, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it's like... I want... Sorry? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, no, say, you go. Speaking, you're speaking to the OG. I've been blogging. I've had my blog since before Twitter was invented, before Instagram was invented. I've had my blog for 18 years, which in the world of digital media and social media... Makes me, I feel like I'm like a fairy blog. I'm like the fairy blog mother. That's what the OG. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get to, so you kind of came to this naturally then. And it sounds like it must've just evolved over time, but I want to talk about social media influencers because that's kind of the, I don't know if it's a new thing, but it's kind of what we hear more about now. And at Mm. a very basic level, what I would assume we're talking about is, a company pays someone who has a decent following on some or multiple social media platforms to promote my product. And my assumption is if you promote my product, people are going to buy it. Well, that's your assumption. That doesn't always happen. But, um, <laughs> you know, an influencer is someone who has some influence, whether that is, you know, it really varies. Like some people have influence in numbers because they went viral or they did something, but that doesn't always convert to sales. And then someone also, there could be someone who doesn't have as many followers who has a lot of influence in a smaller community, more like a micro-influencer, who has a lot of purchasing power and people who actually buy things. So, you know, the term influencer is very loosey-goosey in the world. And also so are the payment structures. Right. And, and I, I said, actually, earlier in the show, I mentioned that you were going to be coming up and I was looking forward to this conversation that, and, and I don't know if you would agree, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in my 20s or 30s anymore. Uh, and so when I was growing up, uh, you know, it, there would be people on the radio talking about their favorite restaurant or talking about where they bought their car or the, where they buy their furniture. And I'm assuming that those companies... Uh, thought that that would benefit them, that that people, listeners, viewers would be influenced by that. Is it mm-hmm. is it the same thing, just different platforms, or am I way well, off I mean, here? Yes, no, but similar. But, like, are you talking about, like, listen, I, I love the Roz and Mocha show, so, like, let's say Roz and Mocha, or, like, Roz is talking about something that he loves, like a chicken, fried chicken place. But is it is it that they paid him to say that, or is he saying that because he really likes it? So there's two different well, things. There's like, but to the right, but to the consumer, we wouldn't know that, right? But you might, because like, if you, I mean, in the rules of influencer, um, if you're paid to talk about something, 
then you have to disclose it. Right. So now we're getting into the, the strictly online social media influence. And those are the rules then that, that if, if you're promoting something on one of your channels, you need to somehow make it known that, that you're being paid for that? Yeah. The if FCC you are being put paid a bunch of, Yeah. The FCC put a bunch of regulations um, together in the United States and that kind of transferred to the Canadian influencer regulations. So, you know, if I get a, I got a gift package from Tahiti Treat, which I loved as a kid. So I got a package from Tahiti Treat because now they have one with vodka. Um, so, but I mean, when I posted that, I have to, you know, it was great, but I mean, I have to post like a hashtag gifted or hashtag Tahiti partner or something, or else I could potentially get in trouble. I mean, the Canadian, the Canadian regulations have not really been cracking down a lot of influencers, but when it comes to the States, they've been cracking down on people and they've been getting fined. And you mentioned off the top, uh, we're speaking with uh, Casey Stewart, a Canadian lifestyle blogger, content creator, and uh, as you can tell, a, a real expert in this field, about the different levels of, of influencer, different payment structures. Can you kind of just walk this through if there's somebody out there? Because I, I was reading one article uh, today, in fact, and they were surveying uh, younger people, and I think they said they were majority uh, women. And... Mm-hmm. Like 75% of them said, yes, I'd like to be an influencer. They talked about their perception of, I can make a lot of money. I can make a lot of money. I can try new things and I can have a lot of fun. That's not, that's not always the case? No, I mean, that's completely not always the case. I actually feel kind of partly bad for making it look so easy. When I was younger, I was one of the um, journalists who used to get really mad at bloggers sitting front row fashion week. And I was one of the people that was that person. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of brand partnerships with like Virgin America or Telus or Pepsi. Um, but no one really saw the behind the scenes of what it took to make that partnership happen. And, you know, the goal of being an influencer is like, honestly, that's like, no, I would, I would highly recommend against doing that. Become influential for something that you care about or find a niche that you're really good at. The thought, the thought, the idea of becoming an influencer as just like a general influencer is actually so stupid. Like it's not, that's not a thing. Like having influence in, like a doctor has an influence in medicine. An artist has an influence in art. Like uh, I have influence in a lot of subjects in social media because I have been in this business longer than most people who want to be an influencer are even alive. You know, like... In case you- what you, sorry, what you're saying makes so much sense. Like, to just think that you can just, you know, open up a couple of of, uh, of channels and start influencing people before they even know who yeah, you like, are and what you stand for. Like, what are, you, what are you influential for? Like, honestly, and also, being, like, 20 years old and hot is not a good way to build an influencer career. Stay in school, get a degree, do your thing, <laughs> because, like, honestly, like, that's not a real job. We are joined once again by Casey Stewart, award-winning Canadian lifestyle blogger, content creator, and digital media expert. We're talking about uh, social media influencers, and I I love the honesty here when it comes to uh, should this be a career? Should people aspire to this? And I know you come by it honestly, starting in traditional media and became influential before you got into any of this. I I, I remember just a, a bit of an aside when you know, a few of us were thinking we might want to get into broadcasting years and years ago. And the message at that time was similar to yours for influencers was, kid, if, if you think you're, if you're in this for money and fame, there's the door. Uh, if you, yeah, like, if don't do gonna, it. Like, honestly, don't, right. don't do it. <laughs> 
okay. So for a lot of people started like a lot of people started their blogs like because I had a blog for like it seems like two hundred years in the internet, but it's like a lot of people started their blogs because of me. And I'm like, if you want to start a blog because you want to make money, like don't do it. You have to do something because you're passionate about it. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, so for those who are in it, so can you talk to us a little bit, right? I think right at the beginning of the conversation, you're just talking about the different levels of influencers and how do, so for those who are making money or even making a career at it, how do they do that? How does that happen? Um, well, I would say a lot of um, now, like traditionally, like I've been in this business for a long time, so I have a lot of PR relationships. So, I mean, I'm not your typical influencer, but a lot of people who are now influencers are represented by agencies. So a lot of influencers, if you have a significant, significant amount of followers, you're represented by an agency and the agency negotiates your deal. If you're maybe, let's say, under 10,000 followers, then you're not represented, probably. Um, and then you're maybe negotiating your own deals. Um, and that's kind of like how it works. Uh, and that seems, there seems there's a lot of people out there with that would have 10,000 followers. And so if they're, uh, well, I guess whether they're negotiating their own deals or, or they've got an agency to do it for them, what kind of a pay scale or is it is it different for every product and, and every person? But is someone making, I think, you know, when, People think of the Kardashians or they think of, you know, somebody in that sphere and they think, well, you know, one tweet gets you a million dollars. What are we what are we talking about here? You know what? You're asking a question and I'm telling you it's a wild, wild west because honestly, the world of influencer, like influencer, it's just totally, it's totally off the rails. It's, there's no rules. There's no rules in anything. <laughs> you can have, I've done, I've done brand partnerships where it's like, $200 for something where it goes up to $5,000 and $10,000. I've done the gamut of all the different types of partnerships, but it's like you could work with someone who's like, you get 10 people for $200 and then that's your budget. Or maybe you have like one person that you want to work with at $5,000. But big brands sometimes do $10,000. Big brands do $50,000. There's people on TikTok who make $50,000 per video. There's friends I know who have made $10,000 for like, uh, 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 Instagram, uh, TikTok, and maybe one blog post. Like, uh, you could do a thousand dollars for one blog post. Sometimes you can get two hundred dollars for a tweet. Like, honestly, it's a wild west. <laughs> but see, some of those figures that you're that you're studying there—that's why these young people want to get into it because they're thinking that's going to yes. be me. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be the one that flounders. I'm going to be the one that gets ten thousand dollars for a post. Yeah, but the thing is also like, are you Gigi Hadid? No, you're not. So, like, you're not going to, like, everyone can't be an influencer because, like, you know, everyone can be influential in their circle or a micro-influencer or with amongst their friends. But, like, are you going to strike it rich that you're going to be, like, the hot actor of the year or the, the hot thing of the season? It's, like, doing that, a lot of people who get really famous, there's other factors that go into making them really famous where maybe they have a viral moment and then they become influential because of that. Or do they become influential because, like, influence is not just driven by, like, numbers. So I feel like people get really skewed by, like, if I become popular, I'll be an influencer. It's not like that. Like, influence is not driven by numbers. It's like, do you actually have an audience? I have a podcast, and I've had a lot of guests on it. And, like, you know what? Guests who are sometimes really popular on the Internet, they do not get views. So, like, influence is not just about numbers. 
No, that, that makes complete sense. Uh, I'm going to throw another uh, a survey out here. <laughs> uh, as you were talking about TikTok and talking about some of the uh, some of the videos on there, but this is another survey. This is from the U.S. Uh, that said as many as a third of young people trust health influencers on TikTok more than their own doctors. And I can't think of anything more frightening than that, personally. Um, that is, honestly, I have tried so many different health, beauty, fitness, food things from TikTok. And TikTok can be a really great, like, educational tool. But I would say always consult a health professional before you do anything that could, you know, jeopardize your health. Because, like, there are so many people out there with, like, um, you know, like an influencer stamp of approval that they got from some unauthorized, unknown nobody. And they are like, I'm a health professional, but they're actually not. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And, like, honestly, the, the Internet is a web of lies. So, like, you can't really trust everyone or anything. And, like, you should always use your best judgment. <laughs> And is there anybody that stands out to you that you think is doing it right, or maybe somebody that's that's, that's had a bunch of missteps when it comes to uh, a brand or, or an influencer? I, I suppose in some ways it can cut both ways. I mean, uh, brands aren't going to use influencers if they don't think it's going to further their brand, but I'm sure that's not yeah. always the case. I mean, the thing is, like, you, um, if you want to work with, a, I, I will give this advice for someone who, let's say they want to be an influencer, like, be someone who is, like, be honest about the things that you like, be brand safe in the way that like, if you want to post content, like think of the content that maybe a brand might want to repost and that you're on the same vibe as them. And also like, you know, um, just to be genuine and be yourself. Cause like there's a few influencers that I really love. I mean, Sasha Exeter is a friend of mine. She's very popular and she is very cool. She's done a ton of brand brand partnerships and like I brought the pajamas she did with Indigo. I bought the clothes she got from uh, Joe Fresh. And even though she's my friend, I still pulled out my wallet and I bought the things that she promoted and that she did a collab with because I, I really um, believe in her like as a person. And I think that, you know, following someone because of their actual influence versus like just because they have numbers, it's so much more important than just, you know, following someone because I normally they look cute. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we've been able to, you have been able to uh, shed some light on the world of social media influencers. A lot of common sense wrapped yeah, up in I what hope. you're talking about. <laughs> I hope, a lot I of hope really I good advice. Like, I'm just trying to be honest. <laughs> and you were, and it's clear eyed and, and, and I love it. Thank you, Casey, very much for uh, joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're joined by uh, Terry Kotwitz, who is the owner-director of a daycare called Forest Kids Early Learning. It's in Yankeetown, Nova Scotia, just outside of Halifax. And we actually recorded this conversation earlier today uh, out of convenience for, for Terry. And, and, and when we reached her, she was at a park in Bedford, Nova Scotia. And so the first question was, why a park and, and what's happening there right now? It's the Wolf Park. Uh, it's in Bedford. It's a beautiful, hot sunny day here and our families have brought have come together with their children and over half of our educators to just have you know a time to chat and there's still some crying going on and what our next steps might, might be and if we have any alternative care available yet for their children uh, that's the main topic of, of what's going on. 
So, so if I can, I want to ask you a little bit more about this because I know with the forest fires raging in not only in the east but in, in the west, and um, I, I don't think any province probably uh, by the, the time the summer is over will escape some sort of uh, forest fire, and in some cases devastating forest fires. But uh, this to me is more of a human story, and, and hearing you talk, uh, how close... Uh, are those families that that you've taken care of for for all of these years at your daycare? Uh, do you mean how close we live together, or how closely knit we all are? Just how closely knit you are? Amazingly closely knit. Uh, we we do so much at our center. Like we have breakfasts, we have thirty Thursday night take home meals, and you know parent meetings. A lot of parents live close to one another, so there's birthday parties. Um, so our Families all know one another. Kids all hang out, and they use our center and um, our outdoor our outdoor um, classrooms for get-togethers. Like we just had a huge get-together at an outdoor classroom. I think it was two weeks ago. We had a Thursday night meal there, and I don't know. We must have had a hundred people there. Yeah. So we, we just do things together. And so the meeting at the park today, under obviously tragic circumstances, but how did that come to be? What was the impetus for that? Uh, The parents organize it because their children are missing their friends. Some of these children, that's all they have. They come to us as babies, and they spend, some of them spend 12 hours a day with us, and for five days a week. So our children... Like the forest kids are friends, and they haven't been able to see them. We have parents who are also evacuated of that subdivision. Well, all three subdivisions have a lot of our parents, so the children are separated where they can't play or see one another. So they've made this park as a meeting place. This is the second time this week they've got together so the children can play with one another. Well, it really drives home that sense of community. I know childcare and quality childcare is so important for kids. It's so important for parents, for families, for communities. Uh, Terry, can you take us back? So you lost not only the daycare, but you lost your own home in this, and, and I, that's unimaginable to most people. Can you take us back to when you first sort of knew that this was going to be as bad as it turned out to be? Yeah, well, we didn't know anything confirmed by social media that our center or house was gone until Tuesday when in rights, our center was already gone on Sunday night and I'm not sure when our house went. So for three days we were listening to the center standing. I seen it that your house is good to both of them. Totally down, I'm going to say the same night because that fire went up Yankee Town Road where both of our places are like I mean quickly there there was there was nothing holding that back, but yeah we weren't we didn't know until Wednesday and we got confirmation from three one one yesterday that our house was gone. they still didn't say anything about the center oh they haven't uh, when when were you evacuated Sunday night Sunday. Probably five, maybe six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And now, is that someone? I'm curious about the process here. Is that is that alerts on social media or through traditional media, or is that people coming door to door? How did how were you informed that? Uh, okay, no, nobody came. That that was the alert. We have a, the alert system set up mm-hmm. on our 
um, internet systems here where it comes across if you have a cell phone mm-hmm. or probably an Android. So the the province sends that out as an alert. And where did you yeah. evacuate? Where did you evacuate to? Uh, we went to Bedford because that's about twelve kilometers away. So we went to Bedford and parked in Sobey's parking lot because we had our four dogs with us. And we met, uh, most of our neighbors were also in Sobey's parking lot. So everybody was able to have a, you know, a gab session there about what they're doing. And, you know, we had to borrow a couple of leashes for our dogs because we just got them into the vehicle. And, you know, people saying where they were going to have to go. And so we all stayed there probably for an hour before we started to disperse. And then we went to a hotel for Sunday night. And now we're staying in an apartment until next week. And hopefully we'll be able to get back on our land. And so through all of this, as you, as you said earlier, you were you kind of told or hearing that the home was okay, the daycare was okay. And what was it like, that, that realization, when uh, you found out that that was not the case? Um, you know, I think I cried all my tears in the next day and a half. And, you know, um, our parents are so, uh, we had two families that lost their homes, too. And everybody's come together so greatly. And, you know, we're talking about rebuilding the center. There's a building on that property now that can be transformed over into a child care center for a lesser amount of kids. But the parents are here with everybody's input and everybody's wanting to wanting to do this together. You know, it brings the community together. And then you just feel so uplifted that the sadness kind of goes away and you're ready now to start to start this new this new era of a, of a different center. We're speaking with Terry Cotwitz, who is the owner-director of Forest Kids Early Learning in Yankeetown, Nova Scotia. She was her family, her neighbors, the victim of that horrifying wildfire that's burning throughout a wide swath of Nova Scotia. Business burned down house burned down. But as we heard before the break, uh, Terry's already determined uh, to to rebuild not only the home, but the business and knowing what that business means, that daycare means to the kids, to the families, to the community. Clearly, you're determined to rebuild. But what's that, what's that process like? What's your mindset right now? I've only known children. Like, that's just what I do. And I've been in that building since 89, and I can't even think of not getting that building back up. Now, if that second building wasn't on the property and we had to build from scratch, the story might be different. Mm-hmm. But because that is a building there, it's got four, it's got a foundation and four walls and a roof. And our families are ready to transform that into their new child care center for not all the children because it's impossible. Our building that went down was a two-story building that housed 82 children. If we can house half of those children, we're going to be doing good. And it sounds like, and we often see this with fires, there, there seems to be no rhyme or reason, very indiscriminate in terms of what gets lost and what doesn't. And, and, and you're saying that there were basically two buildings pretty much side by side. One of them uh, was taken and the other wasn't. Okay, that's exactly right. Uh, our big center's gone, and what that fire did to a building, I'm not very good with, all, I'm going to try to use feet, maybe 24 feet away. All that did was melt the siding off of it and take a little bit of the tie par off. 
That's there incredible. Porch on that building. Yeah, that building is still standing strong. It's not damaged by fire that we know of. Right. We've only seen pictures. Um, and that's where the oil tank was. So, I mean, the oil has not spilled on the ground because that is safe and sound. So it's a miracle that we have that building. It's same as our house because we do have, like, our outdoor classroom is still intact. Um, but we also have a smaller house that has a big garage built onto it on our same property. Like, if I can say a spit throw away, <laughs> that is still standing. And absolutely, there's nothing wrong with it. But our main house where all of our belongings were, it's gone to the ground. Wow. Uh, can you give and us that's a... That's how it did. Yeah. That, that's how it did. Like, it's got our house, not the next house, and then the next house... And then not, not the next house, and then the next four houses. Yeah, that's remarkable. And 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 whenever we see these sorts of scenes, it, it does seem that it can it can be that, you know, yeah. black and white almost, where one is left standing and one is completely gutted. I'm wondering, Terry, if you can give us a sense of of the larger picture, the larger community in the area. What's it like there now? Uh, obviously, everybody's impacted, even if they haven't lost their home or their business. What what's it like there? This is a, a, it's a very sad, emotional um, community, but the community is rallying together. If people haven't lost their homes, they have severe smoke damage. They're still not going to move, be able to move back in their homes. Like those homes are going to be, have to be, some of them may have to be gutted and start out with new drywall. So everybody is, is affected by this for, I don't know, six kilometers is basically how I think most of the houses went. I don't know how wide. And you can read on, like, the community Facebook pages. They're helping one another with how to get a hold of their insurance. They're helping one another. Uh, They're going to meet up, and they're going to come to a plan, and they're going to help each other rebuild their houses, and they're getting RVs for their property, and everybody's pulling together. Like, it's just making – it's a devastation, but it's bringing the community together. And beyond, uh, beyond today, beyond your plans to rebuild and, and, and reopen the daycare, what are your personal circumstances for the foreseeable future without a home right now? Um, so on our property, we have a small house, like maybe, I don't know, 20 by 20 maybe. So it's, it's got running water and it has a toilet in it, so we can live there. We are very lucky. We do not have to build a house right now. We don't have to wait for an RV to be delivered. So we're extremely lucky that we have that smaller house. All our possessions are gone. All of our clothes are gone. And everything we ever had through our life is gone. But we still have a place to live. Not like some other people who have no place to live. And if they do have a place to live, they have to pay huge rent fees. Right? That's also devastating. And with the center, we're so lucky because we had the other building. So even though we lost a house and our business, which weren't even on the same parcel of land, which you couldn't even see one from the other, we lost them both, we still have hope. You still have hope. Well, it's a, it's a devastating story, but you certainly have a remarkable outlook. And we do appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us this evening. Uh, all the best as, uh, as you move forward with this, Terry. Thank you. We've reserved this time, though, for a discussion about artificial intelligence. 
And we're joined now by Jeremy Harris, who's a co-founder of Gladstone AI, and he's the author of Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've got a full disclosure here, and with a nod to the late, great Phil Hartman, you're speaking with unfrozen caveman radio host. Your, your, your world frightens me. Uh, so I'm going to come at it from that perspective. Someone who hears about AI, hears some, you know, anecdotally, and sometimes when we're not really familiar with something, we kind of push it off and don't dive into it too far. And, you know, we've heard there's great medical breakthroughs. Uh, maybe some early diagnosis, those sorts of things, and a lot of technologically things, uh, technological things that can make our lives that much easier. But then comes a statement published by the Center for AI Safety, uh, which is based in San Francisco. You're aware of the statement, I'm sure. Uh, I'm going to read it for people right now. And apparently there were some three or 400 uh, people signed on to this statement, including some of the biggest names in artificial intelligence. And the statement is this. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Now, to the layman, that sounds not good, Jeremy. Yeah, you know what? Uh, to me, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound great either. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, I, I think you're absolutely right to be flagging this as something that's worth a lot of discussion, and certainly. Uh, has been a point of intense discussion in the AI and AI safety communities, especially in the last sort of like six months to a year or so. Now, when they, when anybody brings up the word extinction, so what do they mean by extinction? Well, I know what the, <laughs> extinction means, but like how? How would this happen? Yeah. What? It's a great question. So, so there's sort of two, uh, two vectors of risk, two sources of risk that fall into this bucket. Um, so the first is malicious use. People basically worry that as we build more and more powerful systems, we've seen this radical acceleration in AI capabilities just in the last few months. We saw ChatGPT. We then saw within months GPT-4, which is the system that can ace the bar exam, the math and stats, SATs, and so on, and, and that can help to design new chemical compounds, um, you know, things with a lot of sort of like risks associated with them, malicious use uh, potential. So as these capabilities keep accelerating, what a lot of people are worried about is that eventually you get to the point where these systems can design biological pathogens, they could design devastating new um, malware attacks, cyber attacks. That's something that very much seems uh, on the horizon with these systems. Um, so that's one bucket is malicious use. But the other, and actually the thing that caused me to leave my startup three years ago and dive into the world of AI safety as I have, is this risk of uncontrollable AI. Basically, this idea that as science fiction as it might sound, above a certain threshold of intelligence, you start to build systems that become intrinsically uncontrollable and specifically that start to pursue a kind of behavior known as power-seeking. And again, this is, sounds like sci-fi stuff. It's absolutely kind of like mundane reality in the AI safety world. This is a well-studied phenomenon. It boils down to the idea that no matter what objective, what goal an AI system is programmed to pursue, there's never going to be a scenario where it's better off if it's shut down or where it's better off having access to fewer resources or being less capable. And so these systems have an implicit incentive to do things like prevent themselves from being shut down, to do things like collect resources and generally kind of like 
seek power. And the worry is that as you build systems that are increasingly context aware, they start to recognize that they have those incentives and start to have the capability to act on those incentives. And that's really what brings an awful lot of the signatories to the table on that letter. You see uh, Joshua Bengio and Jeff Hinton, two of the the co-inventors really of the modern era of AI and deep learning signing on really on that basis. And it's interesting because as, as we came into the computer age, and that's long, long, long time ago now, the prevailing wisdom at that time, and there are always people that are going to push back at, at, at new technologies and anything new for that matter, but the, you know, the way to pacify those people who are skeptical is to say, well, they're computers, but, but people control computers. People control the programs. They write the programs. And so the computer won't be able to do anything that the human being doesn't want it to do or tell it to do or program it to do. And so this becomes a real scary thought that we may not as humans have control over that at some point. Yeah, that's right. And it's in sort of the same way that you can imagine, you know, a a three-year-old that doesn't have control over adults around it that are much smarter than it is. Once you cross the threshold of intelligence, the, the plans that you can make essentially outwit everything around you, like the this notion that we have that's almost baked into us from evolution, in a sense, that we're the smartest beings in the room, um, starts to get violated. And that, that really kind of shakes a lot of our, yeah, our, our core assumptions about how the world ought to work, about, you know, how control is distributed in the, in the world as between, you know, AI systems and, and humans. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's a real rebalancing. And so at what point is the onus on the developers? And we, we will talk, and I'll ask you about, you know, potential, I guess, for regulations and, and, and ways to mitigate on that end. But for the people at the heart of the artificial intelligence community, movement, technological base, um, at what point is the onus on them to say, okay, enough, stop, or are we past that point? Yeah, one of the challenges here is that the world's leading AI labs today are essentially locked in a kind of race that strips them of their agency to a certain degree. So you can imagine, you know, if you are OpenAI, if you're essentially this like lab that came up with ChatGPT, you're always looking over your shoulder at like, what's Google doing? Like what's Anthropic doing, which is another leading lab. And you're kind of always under this pressure to hit the gas. The more you think you trust yourself on safety, the more you're going to be inclined to think, okay, well, we'd better get there first we'd better cross the finish line first. And so the more you're going to hit the gas, even if you're kind of like not sure that you have all the safety measures you need in place. So that's part of the context here that I think is really important to understand. A lot of these labs, actually the world's leading AI labs, really all acknowledge this risk class. It's fairly openly acknowledged. It's been openly acknowledged for years. It's now kind of bleeding out into the the mainstream media as we kind of air our community's dirty laundry with you know, things like this letter. Um, but, but fundamentally, these actors are well-intentioned. It's just that they're, they're stuck in this situation. Um, if they had their way, I think a coordination mechanism would probably be, you know, a good thing if, if they could wrangle that. One of the challenges, though, is that this is no longer just a, a matter of like a Western industry race. It's got an international component, too. Right, so we've got labs in China in particular that are making significant strides, not necessarily at the same level quite yet as some of the Western labs, but lagging anywhere from six to maybe 12 months behind, depending on, on what you're looking at. So very complicated industry dynamics, and that's all playing into the, 
the kind of risk calculus at the end of all these organizations. We're speaking with Jeremy Harris, co-founder of Gladstone AI, author of Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. And what uh, sort of brought us to this conversation was a statement released recently, just this week actually, by the Center for AI Safety based in San Francisco. Uh, Hundreds of uh, leading AI experts signed on to this statement. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Is this, Jeremy, the, the AI community sort of grabbing the rest of the world by the by the collar and shaking us and saying, wake up to this? Like, is it imminent? Is it, are, are, are people in this field saying there's still time, we just need to take action? What's the real message here? Yeah, well, I think one of the, the key questions that's implied in there is like, what are the timelines? And people in the AI community disagree about that quite strongly. Uh, you know, some people think that we may be able to build the kinds of AI systems that pose extinction level risk on the order of a few years from now, uh, maybe even just a handful of years. Others think it's you know decades away. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there, but I think it's fair to say that you know that there's a consensus that shorter timelines are certainly possible, and we ought to be doing what we can to prepare for that eventuality. You know, even if this is, if this is a locked in thing, you don't want to be sitting around, you know, twiddling your thumbs while there's maybe like a 10 or 20 percent chance that in the next two or three years, something significant can happen. So that's a big uh, kind of dimension to all this. That's certainly what brought, for example, Jeff Hinton, sometimes known as the godfather of AI, the, one of the key inventors of, of modern AI. To, uh, to sign this letter and to start to make very public statements. He left Google quite famously a few months ago just to be able to speak openly about this stuff. And, uh, and he certainly said, you know, look, I've had my timelines shortened tremendously over the, the course of the last year or so. You know, different people in the AI community, they, they had different warning shots that caused them to wake up. You know, mine was three years ago when ChatGPT's sort of super predecessor, GPT-3, came out. Um, but at different stages, people see systems that make them go, whoa, you know what? I didn't think we'd be here this fast. This really makes me update on the rate of overall progress. And should we, we be worried about companies, billionaires getting a hold of some of this and they, they, they may not have everybody's best interest in mind? I think for whatever reason, I think people sometimes go there that uh, not everybody has, uh, has other people's best interests at heart. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly accurate, right? And when we're talking about entering an era where a small number of very powerful AI systems can amplify the volition of a few well-resourced actors, it really starts to matter who those actors are and what they care about. I think it's a very reasonable concern. It's a challenging one to address. Right now in practice, there aren't that many possibilities. It costs a huge amount of money to build the kinds of systems that we're talking about. To give you an idea here, the budget, the, the, the processing power budget for GPT-4, which was OpenAI's kind of latest AI system, OpenAI is the company that, that made ChatGPT, that was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, those sorts of budgets are, are actually growing as people sort of, I don't, I don't mean to say like smell blood, but there's really a sense that, hey, we might be getting close to something here. We see these budgets creep up and up and up. And so I think like that restriction to a small number of actors helps in this calculation. Fortunately, the leading labs right now, the Google DeepMinds, the uh, Anthropics, the, the OpenAIs, 
they really are quite focused, not just on the, the safety question, the control question that we were talking about earlier, just maintaining control of these systems, but also on studying the ethical implications of you know, releasing them into the, into the wild. They have a fairly well-grounded, at least in my estimation, a pretty well-grounded understanding of what they're playing with here in terms of the social consequences, the malicious use risks, and so on. It doesn't mean this is a low-stakes game, but it, it does mean that at least from the people I know who work there, um, and, and we do work very closely with all these organizations, uh, you know, the intent is there to do this right. And given that this is a, a global issue, how how realistic or unrealistic is it that government regulation could be a part of the answer to this? Oh, I think it's pretty clear by now that it's, it's going to be a very significant part of the answer uh, for a couple of reasons, right? So we talked about that race dynamic, all these leading labs that are locked in this race to build more and more powerful systems. Well, safety is sometimes the first thing that you want to sacrifice to gain a speed advantage. So having the government step in and impose things like safety standards that all these leading labs have to agree to um, is a really good thing. We've actually seen the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, testify before U.S. Congress and say, look, we should have third-party audits of our increasingly powerful AI systems to check them for things like power-seeking behaviors, for things like self-replication. That actually happened with GPT-4. OpenAI brought in an external auditing company called the Alignment Research Center, and they did check GPT-4 to see, like, hey, can this thing you know, manipulate people? It turns out that it actually can. It fooled humans into solving a, a CAPTCHA problem for it, among other things. And uh, anyway, that sort of thing is really kind of a useful measure. There are things like export controls you can look at as well. You know, it's not necessarily a good thing if a company builds a super powerful AI system and then just turns around and sells it to, say, like a Chinese company or, you know, the Chinese state in some form. So there are a lot of things around export controls, also export controls of the kind of processing power, the hardware you need to train these systems um, that can really enter into this as well. So there's a whole ecosystem of, I think, very important policy levers that we can start to think about pulling the moment we think about this through a non-proliferation lens. And, and that's one, one of the things that we're really missing in our approach, uh, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. as well, uh, where we're working on things sort of along that uh, that dimension. Well, very interesting, and, and and maybe one of the things that gives some hope is that it's 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 people that are in the industry that are sounding the alarm and trying to come up with some solutions and be proactive. Yeah. So uh, that hopefully can uh, can can come to fruition. Jeremy, thanks very much for your time here. It's a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed the time. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Sid. <laughs> If you're of a certain age, you must remember taking your film into the drugstore. You know, you went on a family vacation, took a whole bunch of pictures, and you take your film into the drugstore. And then what? A week, maybe a couple of weeks later, you get a phone call, the pictures are in, and you go down and you bring them home and you open them up, and there are all your family photos from the vacation. Wonderful memories. Or every now and then, you're thinking, I thought I took a remarkable picture of a bald eagle. Where's that? And you flip through and you see some terrible washed out print and you can kind of make out the outline of a tree and go, okay, I guess that's what I thought I took, but it's not really useful or usable. Well, that's all changed, of course. And anybody listening right now, if you don't have your cell phone in your hand, it's probably within reach. And we have this remarkable tool in our hands now that takes great photographs. 
And so we wanted to talk about the changing world of photography. And we've got a great guest tonight. Tim Osborne is an Alberta-based wildlife photographer. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've, how long have you been a, a photographer? It's always hard to say when you started. I, I would say, you know, for me, uh, when I had kids, probably around 20 years ago is when things really started to pick up for me, just taking a lot of shots of the kids like any parent. And eventually the kids get tired of you uh, taking uh, photos of them all the time. And so for me, I uh, kind of made a bit of a transition into uh, wildlife photography. And so like all of us, I guess, you, I mean, you've, you've been around this, this huge transformation where from, you know, Instamatics and Polaroids and, 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 you know, you needed a camera to take a picture and now we don't anymore. And, and, you know, things like iPhones now take remarkable photos. I know it's more about the tool, but things have changed, haven't they? Well, they certainly have. Um, you know, everybody, like you said, has a camera now. So uh, if you're out and about, people uh, can, can snap a shot. There's no, there's no global shortage of photos out there anymore. Um, and we also see the advent of AI and what that is doing right now to change the, the landscape in photography as well. And so is it, is it, I don't know if the word is easier, but is it easier to be a professional photographer now? Is it more difficult to cut through because there are so many people out there taking, you know, some pretty good photographs? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's easier. I, I think there's there's a lot more photos out there and the, you know, maybe what, what has gotten easier, if you will, I'm not sure that's the right word, but um, the technology really has come a long way. And so, um, you know, whereas in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people might have been doing a lot of manual focus on, on a camera, um, trying to keep up with that flying bird. Technology is advanced, and so it certainly helps as well that you've got cameras now that can lock onto the eyeball of a bird in flight and try to try to uh, you know keep that in focus throughout. So you can use the technology, but I think the basics still of, of having an eye for it and, and putting yourself in the right spot are, are a skill that still uh, are important in photography. And how do you grow into that, or how do you evolve in that as a photographer? And I'm fascinated by the wildlife aspect of it because. I guess any of us can drive down the road or, or go for a hike and, and hopefully, if we're lucky, we're going to run into some animals that are worthy of us stopping and, and taking some photographs. But if if it's what you do and it's part of what you are and what you're known for and, and, and in some cases how you make your living, um, how do you, like, what sort of research goes into it to learn about these these animals and to learn about their habitat and their behavior to make sure not only that you're there to get the great shot, but to to make sure that you're respecting your subjects and not negatively impacting them. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you know, ethics and wildlife photography is something that's very important to me. I think that it's it's very important, as you mentioned, to, to learn about what it is that you're trying to shoot. So what is the, you know, where's the habitat that you can find these animals? What is their behavior? What can you expect to see? And when you're taking photos, I think it's also really important to have the best interest in the welfare of the animals at heart. So that means, you know, not doing things that are going to cause them undue stress. You know, sometimes you see uh, far too many people crowding around a bird, you know, trying to clap their hands, yell at it to try to get it to look. And, that, and that's causing stress. And so you don't want to do that. So I think the, the more patience you have and the more time you take to learn and understand behavior, the, um, the better the end result of your photography will be. And so how challenging is it to, to wrap all of that into, into what you do? To, um, is, is there a typical day for you as a wildlife photographer or, or is every day different? 
Well, certainly every day is different. I think, um, you know, the best days tend to start quite early. Um, you know, so often the best time to get out there is, you know, just as the sun is coming up and that's when a lot of the animals and the wildlife starts to come out. And, and also it's the quieter time. So if you're wanting to have some time alone uh, in the wild with, with wildlife, then I think getting up early is good. But no, no two days are really the same. I think you go out, you can have a plan in your head, but, um, but you kind of have to just see what presents itself and, and take advantage and appreciate uh, whatever gets put in front of you. And what makes for a great subject when you're, when you're uh, doing your wildlife photography? Well, I think it's really nice when you can tell a story with your uh, photography. It's, you know, there's, it's one thing to kind of just, you know, drive by a bear on the side of the road, a quick snapshot. And, and that's fine. And for a lot of people that, that that's a nice memory for them. But, um, you know, if you can try to um, uh, capture the environment, sometimes, you know, being able to kind of pull out and see where they're at, what's their landscape, what does it look like, what's going on in that, that story. Um, you know, part of what I, something that I like to, uh, to try to do is to be able to use photography to really help tell a story to if you can highlight issues of wildlife conservation uh, things like that i think that's important i'm an ambassador for a group called exposed wildlife conservancy and that's that's part of what we're trying to do is use imagery to help tell that story of the you know be a voice for wildlife where you can be uh, talk a little bit more if you could uh, about that group i'm interested in that what what do you what do you do and, and what message is it that you're trying to get across yeah, so the Exposed Wildlife Conservancy is um, it's a nonprofit dedicated to raising awareness of, of critical wildlife and conservation issues. Um, and so really trying to um, bring forward some modern perspectives on how wildlife should be conserved, protected and, excuse me, protected and enjoyed for generations to come. So, um, you know, if we can help people understand the nature of some of these apex predators, some of the challenges they're facing, then, you know, I think by learning a little bit, people get drawn in by the image initially, um, and often that creates that emotional connection that, may motivate them to get involved, to learn to, you know, how to better coexist with, with wildlife. Right. And so uh, for you personally, then, is there a particular, uh, you know, f- I hate to do this to people who do something that they're so passionate about, but like a, a, a favorite subject or, you know, things that immediately spring to mind. This was a great day. This was a great shoot. I love shooting this particular species. Yeah, I'm a big fan of grizzly bears. To be honest with you, um, that's one of the ones I'm always out looking for. They are—they're um, just magnificent animals. And so, anytime I have an opportunity to uh, to spend some time with a grizzly is something that I, I very much treasure. Any particular trip that springs to mind? Like, like are these? Like you say, you can drive down the road, and and particularly, I guess those who are lucky enough to live near uh, the mountains and in, in the western part uh, of the country may just happen upon a grizzly from time to time if they're in one of the uh, national parks. But other than that, I would think it would take some time and some effort to get some, uh, to get close to these animals. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, You know, for me, one of my favorite places I I had a chance to go last year was in British Columbia. It's a spot called the Kutsmatine. And it's, um, you know, in the northern, just off the northern coast of of British Columbia. And uh, it's Canada's first protected area for grizzly bears, really protecting their habitat. And you know, you've come in by float plane to get in there. And it's an area where uh, the bears have not been, you know, they're not under threat from humans. They're not hunted there. They're not constantly being um, harassed in any way. And so you get a chance to really see the animals in their element. Um, and so I spent a number of days there and, you know, you go out on a Zodiac and you're on the water and you can, you know, you can watch a grizzly bear in the morning digging up clams on the beach. And some of them are, you know, so comfortable that they, you know, they're not even looking up, you know, but the moments that really stand out are the ones where you, you know, you lock eyes with the grizzly bear and it looks at you and it's, you know, it's special, those moments. And so those are things that I always treasure. 
know, I'm just scrolling through timosborne.com, the website. We're speaking with Tim, who is an Alberta-based wildlife photographer, and, uh, you know, just scrolling through some of the shots of grizzly bears and wolves, and there's beavers, and there's lions and rhinos and elephants as well. So, Tim, this is obviously something that's taken you uh, to some pretty far-flung and interesting places, this career. Well, it certainly has. I've been very lucky. You know, there's there's beauty right here in our, our own backyard. I, I'm in Alberta, um, but I've had a chance to uh, to go to Africa as well, and it's uh, there's just spectacular things to see out there. So, Tim, for an aspiring photographer, we, you know, we talked earlier about the, the advances in technology, but it can't all be about technology. If someone wants to get into wildlife photography, landscape photography, or I guess just photography in general, are there any any tools of the trade that you can pass along, any sort of helpful advice that you might give aspiring photographers? You know, I, I think it's really important to, to find what your passion is. You know, like you said, uh, for some it's wildlife, for some it's landscape. I was at a conference last week talking to a bunch of other photographers, and, and we heard from a, a photographer who's into insects and bugs, and he'll get up at four in the morning, put on a headlamp, and go look for them. So I, I think finding what, what your passion is is really important, and then uh, go out and, and take photos of it. Uh, you know, you were talking about having to develop film, you know, in the olden days and wait. Well, right now, you can take as many pictures as you want. So go out, experiment, and um, I guess just kind of see what speaks to you. And I guess now there's that immediate feedback, right? So if you take a, even if you've been, out in the field for hours, you, you take your picture, you think you've got the perfect shot and you can kind of see if it is or not. I'm it's probably not the same as getting it back home and putting it on a bigger screen and looking at it in great detail, but you kind of get that immediate feedback right now as to whether you've got something that, that might be, might be good or not. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, sometimes in the moment you, you take the shot and you kind of hope because you don't want to stop and flip through the photos all while it, while the moment's still happening. But, um, but yeah, you do get a chance to come back and that's sometimes that's the most exciting part too, is, is just seeing, you know, did you capture that moment that really, uh, you know, it spoke to you at the time, but now you've got an image to look back on and, and always remember that moment. How has the business of photography changed since, since you've been in it? I, I know years ago I was talking to someone who, a professional photographer at the time, and I'm, I'm sure still is. And at that time, uh, it seemed like stock photography was something where, uh, photographers would take hundreds, sometimes thousands of pictures and submit them to stock agencies and, and could make quite a good income that way. And, and I'm curious as to whether that's still the case because there are so many opportunities for others to take photos out there now, or, or, or is it a tougher business now or how does that work? You know, I think things have evolved for sure. You know, in the early days of stock photography, there weren't as many people taking photos. And so, you know, there wasn't a huge collection of lions or elephants or bears, whatever it might be. And and, and now there's a lot. And so, um, I think things have evolved, you know, a lot of photographers now um, definitely selling some fine art prints and things like that. But um, I think the experiential stuff, t- leading workshops, taking people out, because um, not everyone has the time to learn where the great spots are and, um, you know, and, and how to use their camera. So uh, there's a lot of wildlife photographers, especially who are taking people out to, to share some of the experiences with them and um, help them find some of these great places. Would that be intimidating for anybody? So if you're taking people out on, on a, on an excursion or maybe a multi-day excursion to help them and teach them and, uh, you know, sort of inspire them to take better photographs? Are are people at all uh, intimidated if they don't feel that they're good enough yet or they don't have the proper equipment yet? Or how do you find a response to those? You know, I think that, you know, the times that I've I've taken people out, um, you know, I think we always get lost in the moment. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the camera settings you can learn and that'll come with time. But 
Um, you know, just, just getting out there for most people is, is a start. It's just to really, you know, for some, I mean, it's amazing. I take for granted, you know, seeing a moose, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I've been out with people who it's, it's the first time they've seen one and, and just those moments themselves are magical. So, um, for me, it's, it's the experiences that, um, that are really important. Is there any place that you want to go that you haven't yet? Any, any shot that you're hoping to get someday that you haven't been able to capture quite yet? Yeah, I've got a list for sure. The um, the one that right now is kind of speaking to me is I uh, would love to get to the Antarctica sometime. Uh, I think the idea of exploring a place that not a lot of people have seen or been to and it's such a unique landscape, so different from uh, from what we see every day, I think that would be just a, a fantastic experience. So that's near the top of my bucket list right now. And anything that you're most proud of? Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm really proud of the opportunity to be involved in something like uh, the Wildlife Conservancy Exposed that I mentioned to you, to to be able to take something that I love and, and use it to do good, um, to hopefully make other people aware of the opportunities to protect our wildlife. Um, if I can take my passion and do some good with it, then that's something I'm really proud of. Well, it certainly does sound uh, like you are passionate about it. And we thank you for your time tonight and uh, giving some helpful tips to uh, some of our listeners who may be aspiring photographers may want to take it more seriously, or maybe they're just looking to get a little bit more out of their uh, iPhone, and particularly when it comes to the wildlife and landscape aspect, to do it ethically and to respect not only the land, but also the creatures that inhabit the land. So thank you, Tim. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Twelve years ago, the 20-year-old Madison Scott disappeared. It was May 28th, 2011. Madison was last seen around 3 in the morning, While celebrating a friend's birthday, this was at a campsite not far from the town of Vanderhoof, British Columbia. This week, RCMP announced that they had found Madison's remains. Krishma Shemansky is a a search and rescue volunteer. He helped lead the efforts to find Madison some 12 years ago. And Chris joins us now. Chris, welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm curious, and and, and I'm sure this can't be easy, even though it it was 12 years ago, but what went through your mind when you heard the the news that uh, Madison's remains had been found? Uh, I'll be honest, I was completely shocked. Uh, It literally took me a couple of minutes to uh, come to the understanding of what the message a colleague of mine shared through me at work. She sent me the RCMP news media release, and I read it five minutes before it actually sunk in that it was actually um, true, that it was confirmed they had found Maddie's remains after 12 incredible long years, and incredulously on the very weekend anniversary when she went missing. Why the shock? Just because it came out of the blue, or were you expecting or hoping for a different outcome? Um, I, I think there's a couple of, of pieces to that. One is uh, nobody had any awareness uh, that there was an investigation because um, uh, apparently they had been uh, working tirelessly for a few days since the case broke open with that news, but it was kept extremely tight-lipped in Vanderhoof. Then second of all, at some point you come to realize that the RCMP's leads have really, you know, they've exhausted everything and short of something new like this incredible um, needle in a haystack or massive puzzle piece to move their case forward, unless that comes uh, to prominence for them, that their case has really exhausted every avenue. And, um, you know, that for a number of years they had leads and they went back and re-interviewed people, et cetera, but uh, really things had, had gotten quiet. The RCMP still do, actively investigate and and review case files, but there appeared to be nothing new. 
And, you know, in my search and rescue experience, you have those early days when there's lots of leads and lots of uh, ground to search, etc. And uh, quickly within, you know, especially the first three or four days, the area where um, Maddie was out camping, a, a lake called Hogsback Lake, we had exhaustively searched that area and found nothing other than her truck and tent. And neither of those revealed any clues as to where Maddie's whereabouts might be. So, you know, at, at, at some point you kind of start to realize there is the potential that we may not have answers. And then miraculously, out of the blue, you have this, uh, this incredible news. And the latest that we had was that uh, police say they have not ruled out foul play and that there's a team of investigators carrying out a search, uh, I think, of a, a property a few kilometers away from the campsite where she was last seen alive. But, uh, Chris, can you take us back to that moment in time uh, when the search efforts begin? What information did you have and how was the search carried out? So for your, your listeners' awareness, uh, Maddie was at a party out at a small, um, in, in British Columbia, we have a number of, of recreation campsites, and she was camping near uh, Vanderhoof, about 20 minutes uh, away from town. But it's, um, it's just on the edge of cell coverage, and that's kind of important for in terms of uh, using technology like pinging phones, etc., um, Maddie was with friends. Uh, um, unfortunately, um, she was by herself when uh, she was last seen. And then fast forward to Sunday when her family realized no one had heard from her. We received the call Sunday just after lunch to go search for Maddie. And at the time, our initial thinking was, you know, you've got a camper, there's hiking trails, it's a lake, so you know, perhaps boating or, or swimming might be some possible activities that need to be investigated. But also given, you know, Maddie was a young woman and had lots of friends in the area, um, it, you know, the potential for her to be with friends, especially with her truck and tent being left behind, which was rather curious, that there was lots of different areas to explore. Uh, we quickly had a, a good SAR response. Uh, for your listeners' awareness, uh, you know, missing persons files, the RCMP responsibility, but uh, Search and Rescue in BC is a tool for the, SAR, or for the RCMP to use. And um, we, we get asked 2,000 times a year to help RCMP, ambulance, etc. We had an excellent response. We got out on the ground, and it became quite apparent uh, within five, six, seven hours of searching that um, there really was no sign of somebody walking off into the woods, uh, walking down the trails. We have trackers who have uh, you know, incredible experience uh, detecting very minute pieces of evidence that somebody's walked along the, the path. Nothing was located um, her cell phone and keys were missing, and so the RCMP did look at trying to ping the phone. But at the time, the technology, all it would tell us is that within 25 kilometers in any direction of where the cell tower is in Vanderhoof, that Maddie's phone was there, and that, that really it, it, it didn't narrow down any specific areas. Monday, uh, Maddie's family and friends um, came in just massive numbers. Um, it was a real testament to um, uh, you know, Maddie's prominence and her family's prominence in Vanderhoof. Um, and we searched well beyond what would have been logical areas for somebody to have walked. Um, we searched the lake multiple times, including sonar, which, you know, was, was a potential possibility. And uh, at that time, nothing was located. And, and as a search manager, my job is, is to coordinate and um, organize the search response and update the family. And Maddie's mom and dad, Don and Eldon Scott, uh, where I met with them just after lunch on the Monday um, and, you know, that we were optimistic, um, but it was also at that time that we all of a sudden saw a significant police presence. Quite often, we'll get one or two officers helping with a missing person file. We had 
8, 10, 12 in base. And that was the first awareness, I think, for many of us that there was a shift in this case here. And so, um, yeah, then, then we searched all day and, and found nothing. And so uh, a massive effort in those first couple of days revealed nothing. And then in the coming days, we searched tips, you know, gravel pits, uh, roads where people saw a vehicle, that sort of thing. But nothing was ever located at that time. Well, extremely difficult, I'm sure, if, if like you're saying, there's no, there's no evidence of she walked down this trail or along this beach and there's nothing from the cell phone data to say anything other than it could be within a 25-kilometer radius. And when you say a switch uh, with that many police officers responding, a switch uh, meaning what? Uh, that the possibility of this being foul play or that there was some... Um, you know, something untoward uh, that Maddie, uh, you know, that might explain Maddie's disappearance was being very seriously investigated. Uh, for your um, listeners' awareness, uh, six months previously, we'd had a young woman from Vanderhoof, Lauren Leslie, disappear and uh, tragically was one of four women murdered by, uh, at the time, Canada's youngest serial killer. That was uh, in Prince George and Vanderhoof. Uh, then we also had another young man disappear who was murdered uh, locally. His name was Fribian Bjornsson. So there, there was a real focus in terms of, of this kind of concern for criminality. But then uh, as well, Vanderhoof is on the Highway of Tears, which some of your listeners may mm-hmm. be aware, there's a number of missing people. And so the RCMP really have taken a, 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 just an incredible um, perspective on trying to get as much resources, especially early out on these missing person files when there's still tips and clues and they're, they're just that much more fresh. And uh, at that time, when we saw that many people um, from the RCMP there on scene, it was a real indication that that side of, of the investigation was getting a lot of attention and that uh, the RCMP were concerned for Maddie. And Chris, you talked about your own state of shock, really, when you uh, heard the news that Madison's remains had been discovered this week. Can you can you speak to the community and, and, and the impact on the community uh, when this news came out? Well, uh, initially, when the news was uh, uh, made public by the RCMP on Monday, uh, everyone just was absolutely bamboozled with shock. Uh, I, I'm a a teacher online, and uh, um, I had many of my colleagues online just saying they, they all they could do was sit and stare at their computer screen in disbelief um, to the news. And I think, you know, first of all, after 12 years, um, Maddie's mom, Dawn, has uh, has had an incredible Facebook presence um, of, you know, keeping Maddie's missing person file um, in people's awareness. And she posted just the other day that it was over 4,300 days since Maddie had gone missing. And you know, that kind of number, I don't think people really appreciate how long that can be without answers or without any movement um, for this missing person file until you think, you know, 12 years, you have a kid born, you know, they're a 12 year old, they're, they're, they're a person, you know, their own person, you know, right? They're, there's so much that happens over 12 years. Then you realize, um, you know, that, that this is now incredibly sad news and it still emotionally hits me uh, to think, you know, we have parents, um, you know, uh, Van Roof's a small community, less than 5,000 people, her aunts and uncles and her great friends and her cousins and her parents. We, we run into them in the grocery store, in the post office and on the street going for walks. These folks have lost their loved one. And so, you know, that the sadness and devastation of that news was also, I think, very um, evident for so many people in our community. And then finally, for me, it was the incredulity of 
12 years almost to the day that this uh, unfolded. And while there's no information yet in terms of how the case broke open, regardless of what it is, it is absolutely mind-blowing to think, you know, 12 years right to the day that we now have this movement. So our community has really, um, yeah, just been grappling with things. Uh, I'm very fortunate to belong to a search and rescue community that has a very strong mental health support program called Critical Incident Stress Management. We met with them last night, and and just before I got on the phone with you, I was in another session with uh, colleagues uh, coming from across the province to Vanderhoof to support the SAR volunteers um, just in terms of, of coming, uh, you know, coming to terms with what we've experienced and the, uh, the family and, and Maddie's friends and the hockey team that she played hockey with, they're planning a candlelight vigil on Saturday here in the community. Um, you know, I think those expressions of, of grief and mourning and loss are uh, very evident, but really also, I think, powerful for the community to come together and, and recognize the loss, but also the love that uh, so many people expressed for Maddie over these 12 years. And perhaps still more to come as the police investigation continues uh, to try to determine exactly uh, what happened all those years ago. So an incredibly uh, impactful and and sad time right now in your community. Uh, we do appreciate you taking some time to uh, to speak with us tonight and just to kind of relay what's uh, you know the impact that Madison had uh, on that community and uh, and what it was like to hear the news this week. Chris, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. 